You may be seated. Good morning. There are some seats up here. They always leave the front ones for you guys. Yeah. So feel free to come in. There's, there's one and two and three rows here, right here, that have several seats. It's fine to come in, sit down. Yeah, welcome. Again, my name is Robert, um, the lead pastor here at Mercy House. This is year 19 of our church, uh, so it's kind of exciting uh, to, to see new faces and uh, to see a, a whole new uh, generation of students, but also community members that are becoming a part of our, of our church. So we're in the second week of a sermon series on Deuteronomy, and as you just heard, there's some tough texts in Deuteronomy. We're not going to shy away from those. We're, we're going to dive right in those. And I'm hoping it's going to be helpful to you. Uh, I think that these, some of these texts are some of the texts that detractors of the Bible bring up and say, what do you do with this? And we kind of go, well, I don't know. Why don't you read the New Testament, you know? Um, and so we, we don't do that here. We, we read the Old Testament. We, we uh, teach it. We talk about it. Uh, if you want to read ahead before you get here, there are some little bookmark things that look like this that are, uh, they have the, the reading guide uh, of the scriptures each week. And so there's some on that back table there. I'm, I'm going to just drop these right on the stage here. And if you want to come up here and grab those, we've also been posting that reading guide on uh, our social media platforms. So hopefully you can get to it. And honestly, I do. I want you to read before you get here. I think it's helpful for you to have read and reflected on, on the scripture uh, before you, you hear me preach on it. So last week we said that uh, the, the book of Deuteronomy is like a pregame talk. Uh, they are about to go into the promised land. It's going to require them to enter into battle, uh, and they don't want to do that. In fact, their parents, 40 years before this sermon, uh, said, no way, I'm not going. And so it's like this pregame talk to get them motivated so that they will actually engage in the conquest that God is calling them to. I also la- said last week that this, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, it, it functions a little bit like a, a swing. Uh, in a, with a swing, if you're on a swing set and you, you want the swing to move forward, before you can make it move forward, you got to kick back. So you kick back and then you move forward. And so you see this in Deuteronomy where, where Moses is, is kicking back, he's looking back, he's remembering all the ways that God has been there for them. Uh, the Exodus, Sinai, getting them through the terrible wilderness. And then uh, today you're going to hear some of their first victories before they even get in the, to, to the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. And so he's remembering in order to help them to re-engage and to go forward on the mission that God has given them. Uh, last week, we, we looked at the remembrance of the refusal of the Israelites to go in and actually take the land. And again, this was 40 years before uh, this moment where he's giving this sermon in Deuteronomy. And so he, he, when the parents of those that were hearing this sermon were given the opportunity to take the promised land, uh, they said no, and they were therefore disciplined for that. Uh, this is what we talked about last week. So you, you can go on our website. You can listen to the sermon from last week if you want to, want to play catch up. Uh, it might be even helpful since it's the beginning of the sermon series, and it kind of sets the course uh, if you want to listen to it this week. But essentially, he, he, he pushes them back out into the wilderness but the reason I call it discipline and not some kind of punishment uh, is because he doesn't leave them. He does send them to the desert, but he doesn't leave them. Uh, he still cares for them. Even in this second chapter, 
uh, of Deuteronomy 2, 2, verse 7. It says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So even though he said, I'm not letting you go into the promised land, I'm making you go back out in the wilderness, he, he was still their God. He still loved them. He still was with them. He cared for them. He was in covenant with them. And we talked about this last week where we said that God's covenants, the foundation of those covenants are always on his promises, not on the promises of the human beings in the covenant. And so he, he makes good on that promise. Even though he sends them back out into the desert, he cares for them, makes sure they have food, water, protection, uh, and, and he, never, he never leaves them through that, that moment of, of, of discipline. So in, in Deuteronomy 2, we get to hear some of the first in, engagements, military engagements that they have. So you might want to go ahead and open one of the Bibles that's underneath these chairs or look on your phone or look in the Bible that you brought. Deuteronomy 2, it's the fifth book in the Bible, second chapter, and we're going to start here in a minute in verse 26. But what happens is they spend 38 years out in the desert, and then God says, okay, it's time to go back toward the Jordan, back toward the promised land. And he cuts off the miraculous food and water. And so there's no more manna, there's no more quail. So now they actually have to buy their, their groceries. It's sort of like going from being a college student to being in real life. Right? <laughs> it's like college student, you just show up at the dining hall, and they just give you food, and then you give them the dirty dishes back, and they just, whatever they do magically behind the closed doors there, they, they clean the dishes, and then you come back the next meal, and the dishes are clean. You know, it's amazing, right? It's not like that for the rest of your life, those of you that are students. And so they go from, like, go out every day, there's manna from heaven, you get the manna, the quail come in the afternoon, you get the quail, and, and I mean, it, it probably tasted a little bit like dining hall food, but... It was good, you know, it was, it was nutritious food, and they were cared for day in, day out for 38 years, right? And so the meal plan ends, and, and then they have to actually buy their groceries. Well, so, that, so they're moving through the wilderness, and they're bumping into these different people groups who are not nice people, and they're, they're, they're trying to save their little patch of land, and, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to go to battle for that little piece of land that they're on. And they're having to make little peace treaties with them and promise them, we're not going to take your land. We just need food, and we'll give you money, and we'll stay on the road. And, and so it works pretty good. The people are willing to, to receive that, partly probably because there's like two million of these Israelites. So they're a little bit of a th- they're, they're threatening. <laughs> and so here they go. They're, they're cruising through the, the wilderness, back toward the Jordan, back toward the Promised Land. And this whole, like, purchase your groceries as you go is working out pretty well until they get to Hezbon. And Hezbon is uh, this, this place right, you can see it on the map, it's right, in, pretty, pretty close to the Jordan River. And so uh, they, they are basically, they've got a staging area, and from that staging area, they're going to go into the Promised Land. And so they get to Hezbon, and here's what happens. And so this is uh, verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sion, the king of Hezbon, with the words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I'll go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar 
did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. So this is the spiel that he's given everybody else. The Moabites, um, Esau, his, his descendants, and they've all been willing to receive that. And they've been able to peaceably go through. And so they get to Hezron. Hezron's an oasis, and they need water, and they need provisions, and at this, but this time it doesn't work. The king is not open to this. So verse 30, Sion, the king of Hezron, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So there's sort of this combination thing going on where the king of Hezbon is saying no, and it's saying that God's hardening his heart. Now, these are these verses when we're reading these, you know, it's like our quiet time. We read that and we're like, I don't know what to do with that. I think I'll, you know, go to Philippians and read something that's a little more understandable. But we, again, we need to drill down into these kind of scriptures and, and begin to think about, well, what does this say about, about God and who He is and how He works? And what it, what it, it tells us is, is that there's some human decision going on where Sion's saying no, but there's also some miraculous work of God in the very heart of this king. He's hardening the heart of the king. And the heart, from the biblical understanding, is, is that it is the very center of the human being. It's this mystical center from which your mind, your will, your emotions all spring from. It's the place from which you, you, you exercise your will, you exercise decision. It's the place where you believe, right? Believe in your heart, right? This is, this is Christian language. When we talk about when you become a Christian, what do you do? You believe in your heart, the very center of your being, and this idea of God being able to harden a king's heart or soften a king's heart or move a king's heart, this is, this is not new. Like, this is all throughout Scripture. Here's probably the, the, the most uh, well-known Scripture about that. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so all throughout Scripture, there, there's this tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of human beings all throughout. Uh, there, there wouldn't be confusion around it. There wouldn't be controversy around it if it wasn't there. They're both there. The Bible speaks to both the, the, the free agency of human beings, their responsibility for those choices that they make, but also the sovereign power, the sovereign work of God where He wills things however He wants and they're always consistent with His character. Right? We've talked about God being holy. That's part of what it means to be holy. He's consistent always. He doesn't just get up one morning like a Greek god, and He just kind of goes off on somebody because He's just feeling angry. Like he, he is always consistent. But He does have sovereign power, and He has the power to harden uh, this king's heart. Um, there are other places, as I said before, where, where the Bible describes this happening. This, this, this is described happening in the, the heart of Pharaoh, right? We look at, there's lots of verses that we could cite, but Exodus 4.21, Moses is, is uh, getting instructions from God about the Exodus, and it, God says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So he, he doesn't do this usually, but he does reserve the right to sovereignly 
work in this way. Uh, and I think it would, it would be obvious to us that God does indeed allow humans to do things that He doesn't want them to do. Human beings go away with a lot of horrible, awful things. And they're given the freedom to do that. But there are times when in order to move forward the plan of God, He will supersede that free agency. And you see Him doing it in Pharaoh's heart because He has a plan that He wants to carry out. You see Him doing this in King Sion's heart because he's got a plan that he wants to carry out. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, just so you don't think it's just an Old Testament thing and the New Testament doesn't have this kind of stuff, uh, Apostle Paul writing about the, the, the sovereignty of God in Romans 9, and he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So it's Paul kind of pushing back on, on his reader, saying, you're the clay, God's the potter. He's created everything, seen and unseen. He reserves the right to do as he sees fit. There's also some hope in that. Because when you do see things unraveling in this world or in your life, and just to know that, that God can move in that, in the midst of that, any way He sees fit. And He is all good, and He is all wise, and so He is able to use that all power in a way that brings about a redemptive plan. So we get to see a little bit of the mind of God here about why He's hardening Sion's heart. So verse 31, the Lord said to me, Behold, I've begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children, and we left no survivors." So part of what God is doing as He hardens Sion's heart is that He is forcing the Israelites into military engagement. They don't want to be engaged in it. This is not some crazed holy war where they're strapping on their swords and wild-eyed and want to go kill all the infidel kind of thing. This is not what this is. They don't want to be a part of this. In fact, their parents said, we will not be a part of this, and they were disciplined for it. And so now he's cut, cut off the manna in the water, and they're having to, to engage the people there, and it causes them to have to be in a military conflict. And the hardening of King Sion's heart forces that issue, and he forces that issue at a time when Moses is actually still with them. Moses, their spiritual leader, if you hear last week, you heard about how Moses was going to be disciplined as well. He was not going to be able to go into the promised land because of something that he had done. But in these first couple of conflicts, before they go across the Jordan and into the promised land, they have their spiritual leader, Moses. And so they have the spiritual leader, Moses, and they have Joshua, who's their general, their military general. And Joshua will later take over from Moses and become their leader as they go into the promised land. This is their first 
holy war, so to speak. That's unsettling to us as moderns. No, no doubt about that. I know that. It, it sounds a little bit like ISIS or some kind of uh, crazed terrorist group. Perhaps worse, especially since the way they carry it out, they kill everybody. They kill everybody. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant, they kill them all. And as we, again, we read that, we want to quickly move to Philippians and keep reading something else, right? But there's some things that if we understand some truths that are throughout all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, these things begin to make a whole lot more sense. So one is, is that ever since sin entered into the world, every human being is worthy of death, both physical and spiritual. I'll say that again. That ever since sin has entered into the world, every human being on planet Earth has been worthy of death, which includes both physical and spiritual. When I say spiritual death, I mean separation from God for eternity. That's called hell. Every human being after the entrance of sin. It began with our parents, Adam and Eve. They were created and they were in perfect relationship with, with God and self and others and earth. And they're giving this explanation, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and, and worked it to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so he lets them know, if you break this one command, which is consistent with the character of God, right? He's kind of giving them this, this laboratory, and he's saying in this laboratory... I'm the king of the universe, and, and I'm your father, and I, I have created you, and you're my children. And so the, the way that this works is that you stay in life-giving relationship with me by continuing to worship and serve and submit to me. But if you break that and you disobey the command, you're disconnecting yourself from the source of life, and you will experience death. And when you, when you look at death in the Bible, you need to think separation, separation. Uh, you see separation between the body and the soul, right? That's why a, per a physical body is dead. It's experienced a disintegration, right? It's disintegration that has caused the body to now be dead because the soul is no longer there. You see a disintegration between heaven and earth, right? God's present in the created order, and He's, he's, he's in fellowship with Adam and Eve, but then after that, there's a separation, there's a disintegration that occurs because of sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. You also see this disintegration between human to human. And so here, humans are made to be unified, they're made to be in fellowship with each other, but because of sin and the results of sin, they're disintegrated. And so there's, there's hardly anyone right now on the planet that would say there's nothing wrong in the world. Right? We're all on the same page regarding that. That's why, you know, all of these that are college students, you're, you're hearing about all of the solutions that UMass or Amherst College or Smith or Mount Holyoke, Hampshire has to offer, whether it be political or sociological or psychological or 
all these different ways. We're going we're to splice all your genes, and then everything's going to be okay. And, 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 and there's all these sort of secondary things that matter, and they are part of the solution, but they're not the deep problem. The deep problem is sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. And this is why we have this disintegration right, of heaven and earth, of body and soul, of human to human. Um, Adam and Eve should have, they should have died like on the spot, on the spot. And we'll talk more about why it is that they actually didn't. Uh, There's only really one explanation for why they didn't immediately have a disintegration of, of body and soul and just drop dead right there, and that is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. He withheld some of the deserved punishment that they should have received in that moment. That's what mercy is. Mercy is this compassionate withholding of deserved punishment. We think of mercy, we think of compassion, and that is right. We think about it theologically, it's more than just compassion. It's this compassionate withholding of deserved punishment. Right? It's, it's like the, the child that doesn't want to be in timeout and please, oh, please, oh, please don't be in timeout. And the parent has mercy on the child and says, okay, you can go play. Right? That's mercy. It's compassionate withholding of deserved punishment. And so you, you don't only hear about this in the Old Testament. You hear about this in the New Testament. Probably one of the, the clearest places where you hear about that, Romans 3 uh, Paul's talking about all of humanity. That's when he, what he means when he says Jews and Gentiles, right? That's sort of like this blanket term for every human being. And he says in Romans 3, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a quote from Old Testament. And then he goes on. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's the Apostle Paul saying what I just said. Everyone is under sin and therefore worthy of the consequences of sin, which is death. Everyone. It sounds harsh. Again, as moderns, we don't like that. We react negatively toward it. We want to think of God as only loving. And we don't want to think about Him as being just. Of, of being a God of wrath. And we want to believe that God merely wants me to be happy. He wants to love me and he, want to make, he wants to make me happy. But what if this is the God of our own making? What if God is something more than just our genie in a bottle? And he, I would say, is indeed, yes, more, much more. Uh, this God of our own making, that's so, he's so common uh, in, the, in the U.S. that there's even a, a phrase that's been used since, I think, around 2005 uh, in a book called uh, Soul Searching, and they use this term, moralistic therapeutic deism. 
And they, they, they talked about this sort of concept of God that U.S. Christians have, especially younger uh, Christians, and it's, it's moralistic in that they say, my God wants me to be nice and good and fair, and whoever's nice and good and fair will go to heaven. So that's sort of the moralistic part. Uh, the, the therapeutic part is that this God who wants me to be nice, good, and fair uh, also wants me to be very happy. And so he, he is working hard to make sure that I am happy and that, that I, I feel good about myself. And then deism is that he, he's, he's sort of far off, right? He sort of set things in motion, and he's not real, real involved in my life unless I have a problem, and then I can get him involved in my life. But if I don't have a problem, he doesn't need to be involved in my life. He doesn't need to tell me how to spend my money or what to do with my sexuality or how to treat my parents or how to work or not work. He, he doesn't need to be involved in that. He just needs to be on call until I have a problem, and then I can call out to him. And again, like the genie in the bottle, we bring him out and we ask him to help us out so that we can again be happy because we know that's what he wants. This is not God. This is not God. You can attach Christian words to that God. You can attach uh, all kinds of, of biblical concepts and stuff to that God, but this is not God. This is not God. The, in order to appreciate the good news of the gospel which I'm, I am going to get to the good news, okay? So, so if you're, you're getting discouraged, don't, don't worry. We'll get there. But we can't appreciate that good news if we don't appreciate the bad news. And the bad news is that every human, since sin entered into the world, is worthy of death, both physical and spiritual. That is what is true. Now, this is the doctrine of original sin. And I'd say if you, if you don't believe in the doctrine of original sin, you do not believe in the gospel, you cannot understand the good news. You cannot understand why Christ had to die on the cross if you don't understand the bad news. That, that, that unless He does that, we're doomed. That we will be devoted to destruction and we will deserve it. Unless there's a salvation. Unless there's a remedy for this predicament that we find ourselves in. So when you see God wiping out people and Deuteronomy or in other parts of the Old Testament, or you see him telling his people to wipe out people. Instead of saying, I can't believe God would do that, why would he do that? What we need to be asking ourselves, if we're biblically informed Christians, is why doesn't he do that more? Why is it that he has so much mercy on human beings that deserve so much worse? And yet, he waits, yet he's patient, yet he, he gives mercy on top of mercy, on top of mercy, on top of mercy, on top of mercy. And you know, there's, there's mercy in this story. Verse 35, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured from Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. And the Lord our God gave all into our hands only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. What you need to see is they don't just have sort of this license to kill, where God's like, just anybody you see who's not like you, just kill them all. No. 
They're given very strict instructions about the particular geographical location where they're allowed to do that. And then other groups that are around that, that they're told they can't touch them. And that if they do, the same thing that is happening to those people is going to happen to them. And so one of those groups is the Sons of Ammon. Now, they have an interesting history, a pretty dark story. If you were ever to be reading through the book of Genesis and you got to chapter 19 and you read about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is the Canaanite plain 500 years before uh, the Israelites go in uh, with Joshua to take the promised land. So this is 500 years before this. So it gives you a little bit of an indicator of what the people were like and how they were doing, right? So here's what happened. God sends angels into Sodom to check the place out and to see if it's worthy of judgment. The men and boys of the city want to gang rape the, the angels. So that's a little indicator of how things are going in the Canaanite plain. A Canaanite plain that God did not bring full judgment on for another 500 years. And so mercy shown to some of the residents of Sodom, uh, Lot and his family, are literally dragged out of there. They don't want to leave, but they are dragged out and they get out and uh, the, Sodom and Gomorrah, not all the cities in the Canaanite plain, not all the Canaanites, but just two cities are destroyed as a way to let the rest of the Canaanites know, hey, there's judgment, you need to repent. And so Lot and his family go out, and Lot's daughters are concerned that they don't have children to take care of them in their old age, and so they, they hatch a plan. The plan is to get their father drunk, to have sex with him, and to get pregnant so that they can have some children. Those children can be their retirement plan. And so they do that. And one of those sons that's born from that incestuous union is Ben-Ami, and Ben-Ami becomes the Ammonites. But God has promised Lot and his family a particular geographical location, and so 500 years later, God's still making good on that promise. And he's saying, don't, don't touch the sons of Ammon, right? And so we, we see him giving mercy, because as you read through the Old Testament, you will find out that the Ammonites are pretty messed up people, and it's understandable as we look at their beginning. When we also look at difficult passages in the Old Testament, we, we need to, to, to zoom out and we need to think about the larger redemptive plan of God and how this particular story fits in the larger redemptive plan of God. Usually when we read these kind of stories, especially folks that are, are detractors of the Bible, they just focus on that paragraph and they just go off on that paragraph. But they're not thinking about the larger redemptive plan of what God is carrying out. He doesn't tell his people to do this all the time. This is not something that, again, they don't just walk around with a license in their pocket from God that says, you just kill anybody, anybody that's not like you, just kill them. That's, that's not it. It hardly ever happens. In fact, this is like the only time in a 2,000-year history from Abraham to Jesus where God says, okay, at this time, at this moment, I want you to do this, and I only want you to do this in this particular geographical location. And it's because he's bringing about a larger redemptive plan. He's bringing about a reintegration. Human beings who are absolutely doomed without some kind of intervention from God. And all throughout the Bible, what you're seeing is God intervening. He is bringing about a plan that will reintegrate heaven and earth. 
He will reintegrate body and soul. He will reintegrate human and human. This is what we're all longing for, is it not? Again, whether we're Christians or not, like we, we long for that reintegration. This last week uh, at Amherst College, a noose was found, left there by teenagers. We, we don't know why they left it in particular, but, you know, nooses have a pretty strong message of lynching in the Jim Crow era, and so that was found on the, on the campus, and there was a demonstration that happened as a result of that, and so Amherst College students stood in a circle hand in hand, and the question was asked to them, what do you need? And those students were yelling out one-word answers. Some of you may be here that were part of that. And there were words like compassion, love, justice, accountability, truth. And I was talking to someone who was on the campus who's a Christian, and they, they, it was like, they, they were like, my heart was so broken because I knew the thing they were longing for was what only Christ could give them. Jesus is bringing an integration. The the reason that God was raising up Israel in the midst of that promised land, and the reason He had to do the things that He had to do in order to establish that new nation is because out of that nation, out of that kingdom, He was going to bring a king. And that king was going to bring the reintegration of heaven and earth of body and soul, of human and human, and there was no other remedy except Christ the King. That's what he's doing in Deuteronomy 2. In a messed up world, he's getting down in the midst of that, and he is starting a new nation, a new kingdom, to bring about a new king. And this is why he can give mercy. Because we should be asking the question, why mercy? How can you give mercy? How can you be a just God and keep giving mercy? And the answer is because of Jesus. We read again in Romans uh, 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some of you that grew up in church, you know that verse. You maybe memorized it. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's one of those quick verses that lets us know everyone is sinned, everyone is worthy of death, both physical and spiritual. And then he goes on to say, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what He's saying. He's saying the, way, the reason He was able to have mercy on folks throughout the Old Testament to hold back deserved punishment is, is because that punishment was going to be poured out on the divine Son of God. And because that was justice, he could also be a justifier. (laughs) He could give mercy to sinners like you and me who had no hope except for the cross of Christ. And so I wonder this morning, would, would you surrender? Would you surrender? These little kings, (laughs) 
These little kings that are in the desert there before the Jordan. You know, we think of king, we think of king of England, king of Spain, you know, these kind of like nation-state kings. These little kings were little punks. And they had these little patches of land and a few little cities. I, I, I hardly would call these cities. Little villages that they're ruling and reigning over. And the God of the universe gives them an invitation to surrender. And he says, no, no, and reaps the consequences of that. And so here you are, King Sion. You got your little kingdom, your little independent human. Some of you are Americans, so you are very independent. And you're like, I've got my own religion. I've got my moralistic therapeutic deism, and you ain't going to take this away from me. And King Jesus, the one who created you, who created everything you see, everything in the unseen, he's asking you to surrender. And as he asks you to surrender, you look down at his hands and you notice that the king of the universe has holes in his hands. Because what he also did with his sovereignty is he sovereignly pushed forward a plan of redemption that included him becoming a human being and dying on a cross as a condemned criminal. And he did that so that he could have mercy on us who deserved nothing but death. He, the holy God, took on death so that we could be given life. How do you get that? You receive it by faith. You just heard it in in Romans 3 where he says it two or three different times. You believe. You trust. You trust in that Savior, His salvation that He's provided for you on the cross. And you respond to that salvation by giving Him kingship over your life. And I'm telling you, He's a good king. He's a good king. On the night before he is crucified on the cross, he's with his disciples, and he's taking bread, he's breaking it, he's giving it to his disciples, he's saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. What he's saying, he's saying a lot of things, but one of the things he's saying is the Son of God, the divine Son of God is going to be disintegrated for the purpose of bringing about the reintegration. In the same way, he takes the cup. After he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me, this this new covenant. He's saying that the Son of God is going to be disintegrated so that human beings can be reintegrated in a covenant community, the church. And so as as we are reintegrated through our faith in Christ, we're also reintegrated in our relationships with each other. And one day, we'll be walking around. Now, right now, we got body and soul, and they're they're reintegrated, although some of us don't believe we have a soul. (laughs) This is kind of weird. But we will be resurrected. So if we, we die before Jesus returns, we will be disintegrated and our soul will go somewhere and our body will be here. But when He returns, because of what He's done on the cross, we'll be reintegrated. and We'll be resurrected. 
and we will live for eternity because of what he's done on the cross. And again, if you're hearing that and you're saying, I believe that, I want that, I need that, I believe that is true, then receive that by faith this morning. I would even encourage you to, to indicate on the card that you were given that you received Christ this morning because we'd love to follow up and, and say, okay, what are next steps for one who's a brand new believer? Or if you're like, I just want to talk about this more. Like, this kind of stirred me up. I got some questions. Indicate that too. I'd like to talk to somebody. I'd like to talk more about what this gospel is about. But if this morning you know enough to receive him by faith, I want to encourage you to do that. And for those of us who uh, we are followers of Christ, we, we've received this by faith. When we come together for communion, we're experiencing at least a glimpse of the reintegration. There's a reason why Jesus instituted a meal. Because it's a fellowship meal, a fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. And so we, we get a little picture as the church, every time we do this, of this reintegration that is already at some level, but also not yet. For He will return and He will bring back His kingdom. And when He returns, no more mercy. No more mercy. Just like for King Sion, there was a day, just for the Canaanites, there was a day when mercy ended. And it was hundreds and hundreds of years, actually. There will be a day in the judgment to come. Mercy will end. There will be no more mercy. Right? And so this is the day to receive Christ by faith. It's a sweet surrender to your Savior King. So let's pray and let's respond. God, thank you that you are good and all-wise and all-powerful and that out of your wisdom and your power and your love for us, you have exercised the plan of redemption. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand some of it as it reads your Bible, but God, we can see your fingerprints all over redemptive history culminating in the cross. And so we're grateful that you were devoted to destruction so that we didn't have to be. And so we receive that by faith this morning and we celebrate that by faith this morning as we take the bread and the cup and are grateful for this reintegration that is uh, part of our lives and will be in an even greater way in the life to come. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.